welcome to the Fat Tail Investment Podcast again. I'm Callum Newman, and today we are going to be talking property, as they say, uh, which is a topic uh, that I have been around for a long time now. So I started with Fat Tail Media, which was originally called Portfield Publishing, I should say, uh, back in 2012, and I paired up with a guy called Phil Anderson, who was an expert in property cycles fairly early on in the piece. And uh, I've, in one way or another, I've been tracking, learning about it, following it, investing around it, recommending stuff around it ever since. Uh, so it's something I'm very familiar with and spent a lot of time studying and all these books behind me, well, not all of them, but a lot of them are related to this. It's very important, not just to make a buck, uh, out of property, which everybody wants to do, but for the stability of the financial system and and when the share market go, or when property goes bad, the share market will go bad as well because they're very interlinked. Um, at one point, I was so enthusiastic, I went and did a real estate agent's course, which was very eye-opening because uh, of how uh, basic it was. I was astounded. Uh, and Victoria has the... I mean, Melbourne has the the uh, the biggest of the courses, which went for a whole two days. Uh, the one in Queensland goes for like half a day or something. Um, well, that's what they told me anyway. Uh, and the only thing you learn in that course is how is the legalities of transferring property from one person to another and making sure that they fill out the forms correctly. There's absolutely nothing about why property goes up, you know, uh, all the things that influence it and oh my goodness. Anyway, so don't ever expect your real estate agent to know what he's talking about. Um, that's my conclusion from that. Anyway, but we want to start with this. So I should say that our guest today is Cameron Murray, who is a housing researcher and an academic, and he's not some theoretical guy, uh, you know, waffling on like most of them do. He came out last year and uh, said that housing would go up, which was very uh, contrarian at the time, uh, and he put his money where his mouth was, bought a place in Brisbane, which he tells us about later. So uh, stay tuned, tuned for that, but I just want to talk a little bit about APRA and their latest release that they just came out. So if you don't know APRA, they are the financial regulator, and they like to tinker with all the things to uh, you know make us all feel warm and fuzzy at night. And they released their uh, press release this week. And I'm going to read you a bit. So here we go. And this is APRA Chair Wayne Burrs said, an unquestionably strong banking industry is central to the stability of the financial system. And this is his quote. Capital is the cornerstone of the banking system's safety and stability. It protects depositors during periods of stress, ensures banks can access funding, facilitates payments and helps banks to keep lending to their customers during good times and bad. Now, I am just going to think out loud here for a minute, so just let me do that. That was bullshit. Oh, sorry, that's a bit rude, um, but that's just what I think. As I said, I've done a lot of study on this, and uh, the regulators are always tinkering with the capital levels of the banking system, and they've been doing it since the 80s. And it didn't stop the Asian financial crisis and the meltdown of the banks in Asia. And it didn't stop 2008 and the meltdown of the banks, the US banking system. And it's not going to stop the next meltdown whenever it comes. 
And the reason being is it's, it's what the banks are lending against that matters, not how much capital they've got. And I, from memory, Lehman Brothers, which is like the poster boy for the train wreck of 2008, had very strong capital levels uh, before it went broke. So that shows you how good capital levels were for them. Um, the reason being property is, uh, well, by the end of these property cycles, is usually very unproductive to be, uh, you get, you know, rank speculation going on where people are just trying to buy it to flip it uh, to make easy money, basically. And then something comes along to, to shatter it all. And then the banks are left with just uh, historically, I should say, you know, huge uh, levels of non-performing loans, which we kind of got a glimpse of in COVID, uh, the COVID collapse, but the, the RBA sort of swung things around and, uh, to bail them out, basically, and the government, uh, you know, ran a huge deficit to keep everybody paying their mortgages and etc. So it saved the bacon that time. But again, when there'll come a time when all those things won't work, and uh, that's part of what I do with Catherine Cashmore over at Cycles, Trends, and Forecasts. But I'll leave that thought with you there of Mr. Apra and uh, his uh, capital levels. Now we're going to go to Cameron Murray. So, again, when you, uh, you know, learning about property, reading about it, listening to the opinions, and we sort of talked about this at one stage, it's like, who do you trust? Who can you trust? Everybody's got an agenda. Everybody wants to sell you something or protecting somebody, whatever. That's the way it all works. So I think Cameron Murray is someone you can trust. I did a podcast with him was it 2015, I think, and he, he was researching uh, the uh, highly dubious rezoning decisions that were made up in Queensland, uh, and he found basically that it was, uh, well, what can you say? There's councillors and developers uh, having lots of fun together, and that goes on down here in Victoria <laughs> and everywhere else they can try and get away with it. So anyway, he's just an academic. He's got uh nothing to sell as such uh, or no agenda to push other than what he thinks is going on out there so we're talking today with him about how he saw the rise in property last year uh affordability in australia the difficulties and complications that come from rezoning decisions in the land market and who that benefits and who it doesn't and his overall view of where you can get uh, reliable uh, information about property cycles and where it's going. So here's the man himself, Mr. Cameron Murray, academic, author, and property investor. You were one of the few people that called housing up uh, when everybody else said it was going to go down last year. Can we begin with what you saw and why you said that um, that led you yeah. to such a contrarian position. We'll start with that. Um, I guess I guess I would say initially that it shouldn't have been the contrarian position for people who are paid professionally to monitor the property market. So, um, so the fact that it was, I think, was more of a social phenomena than anything. Um, it seemed right to panic. It got you good headlines. Uh, and a lot of bank economists 
their role is really uh, marketing. It's about reassuring investors that the bank understands what's happening at the economy and they've got their risks covered. Like, so they they need to say, you know, we're prepared for a big shock. We think that's the way to go. Um, what factors led me to say that? So there were a few. Um, firstly, investors were absent from the market for the two years prior to 2020. Nearly three years since that Royal Commission in 2017, investor activity in Australia had plummeted. Um, and, you know, I'm very aware of cycles in markets. And when things have just crashed, they don't usually crash a second time. They usually bounce. And so that was one factor. Um, traditionally, when investors bounce back into the market, that's a good period of the market. Uh, another factor was the low interest rate. So we'd already seen interest rates adjust downwards in 2017-18. We'd already seen uh, a, a, a better interest rate offered to owner-occupiers compared to investors after the Royal Commission. So this mm-hmm. was made uh, first home buying more attractive. But that the size of the price effect of those lower interest rates just hadn't passed through yet. Uh, prices had fallen in Sydney from twenty in twenty eighteen and nineteen, if if everyone remembers that. Um, and so we'd gone from mortgages cl- close to five percent, four and a half percent, to mortgages at two percent, and prices hadn't really changed. Now prices aren't going to just collapse if people were willing to pay that price uh, when they could borrow at four and a half percent, when they can now borrow at two percent. I just couldn't see how that could happen because you could borrow at 2%, have a collapse in price and still be better off than you were two years ago, borrowing at 4.5%. Um, there's also just the momentum globally. So you know, the, the financial crisis didn't really have a huge macro effect in Australia, but globally it did. And the European and the US markets broadly, you know, different cities had certain boom periods in the 20-teens. But the broad market, really, you could see that momentum coming in uh, all across the US uh, and those low interest rates. And I just thought, you know, you don't usually get a crash when you're just picking up, right? You get a crash after a really abnormal high price growth. So I just thought, how, how is that possible? So you combine all those factors. Uh, and the the other one was the outsized fiscal stimulus globally. You know, the bottom 20% of earners earned more money on JobKeeper and JobSeeker. Um, you know, business owners got $32 billion uh, cash flow stimulus that they don't know what to do. And if you ask around, people's bank accounts were full. This Commonwealth Bank uh, economist, uh, Gareth Ed, said recently that the average bank account at the Commonwealth Bank has $11,000 more in it today than it did before COVID. So you add all that up, people can't spend on travel uh, and and I just couldn't see what there was that was going to crash prices. People kept saying migration and unemployment, but actually if you look at the data historically, there's no correlation. We had the later, the, you know, the 20, the noughties boom uh, had pretty high unemployment as well. Uh, and the immigration pattern had, had some effect certainly on rents in Sydney and Melbourne but it didn't really have broad price effects. So that's um, that's what led me to say it. And I think I, I remember having lunch with a mate last year and he said, how much do you reckon prices in Brisbane will go up? And I said, oh, 
quite a lot. He said, I put a number and I said, 45%. And uh, I just, I just went to a house auction on the weekend that I'd looked at buying a year ago during this period. And it sold for 53% more than it did a year ago. Wow. So that was pretty close to the money, but I don't know how much further it might go now. Probably, probably a little bit in, in a lot of areas. Well, it's interesting what you're saying. A few things there. I just read results from a banking group this morning called Pepper, and one of their problems is people are paying off their loans too fast. <laughs> they keep, uh, and it's across the board because everyone's uh, because of things you're talking about, the the subsidies and the the low interest rates and what have you. Uh, I read yeah. your submission that you gave to uh, or recently, uh, and you talked about how Australian housing is affordable, which is historically. Um, thanks to those low interest rates. Uh, do you still see a big mismatch? I mean, all we ever hear in the mainstream press is how expensive it is. Um, do you want to explain yeah. why it's affordable? for <clears throat> So let me put it this way. Everyone needs to live somewhere and you've got two options. Assuming you don't have a big sort of balance sheet, you can rent money and be your own landlord, or you can rent a property and have someone else be your landlord. They're your options, right? And low interest rates have made that first option of renting money relatively cheap compared to that second option of renting the property. And what we've actually seen is record first home buying. So we had, I think, you know, 80 to 100,000 first home buyers in 2018 and 19. We had uh, each year, we had 171,000 last year. So nearly double, nearly double what we had a few years ago. Why? Because it's cheaper to rent money than uh, rent, a, rent a property. And you know, it makes good financial sense. Yeah, prices might go down, but rents might go up, right? You've got to live somewhere still. It doesn't change that, that equation. And if we look at the pattern historically of the relative price of renting versus buying, we're actually at one of the low points, right? Um, nationally it's it's not quite the low point in sydney for example so that that essentially means the interest on your mortgage is a much lower proportion of what you would pay in rent for the same house right now the catch of course is you've got this big um uh, balance outstanding balance of debt um and you know having large balance sheets does add some risks but you still have to remember yeah you've got that big debt but not owning a house is a big debt it's a liability to rent for the rest of your life. So, you, you know, just because we don't write that down doesn't mean it doesn't exist economically and it isn't real. Um, so, so that's, you know, that's why we've seen first home buyers rising. The catch, of course, is um, for home buyers, you need to come up with a lot of cash for a deposit to borrow that sort of money for a lot of people. And that's why we're seeing the bank of mum and dad you know, being a, a new player in the Australian uh, mortgage game. But, uh, you know, it works in many ways. It's been an effective way of getting that intergenerational shift of wealth by having boomers give their kids money to buy a house. The catch, of course, is boomers who don't own houses, people whose parents didn't catch that wave, uh, are highly disadvantaged. That's yeah. that's the big catch. Absolutely. And I should say I've seen some of your writing where you talk about how politicians pander to this idea of affordability, but it is the basic policy of the RBA and that to prop up the housing market. Is that a fair description of your view? 
Yeah. So I guess my view is uh, since the early 90s globally, we've, we have collectively learnt that uh, the way we think we should do macro stabilisation policy is by keeping people's house prices up if they're going to fall. And we call it monetary policy. And we call it, you know, the, the, the ex, economic accelerator. And we, you know, we all use all these sort of euphemisms. But if you read economics textbooks, it's right there. You know, the transmission mechanism of monetary policy, people who own property goes up in value. Mortgages get cheaper and they have all this wealth and there's a wealth effect. And then they spend some money and they buy a boat or a caravan or whatever. It's right there. That's that's essentially what we're doing. Uh, we could just give money to people who own property instead, right? Directly just put money in their account. But that would seem really, really uh, unfair, right? But because it's disguised uh, within the existing set of balance sheets in the economy, um, we tweak this little lever and we go, oh, all this magic happens, uh, then we can kind of get away with it. I don't see that changing in a hurry. People worry about big interest rate rises coming and inflation and whatnot. I just can't see how that's possible. Are are there examples you know in history where we've got an ageing population, zero interest rates, massive debts, and all of a sudden we've got we've had this inflation spike. I mean, we've missed our inflation target for five years. Couldn't even get to 2%. So um, I just, what I'm trying to say is that even if we get some inflation, the next time there's some economic panic, we could see negative interest rates. We could see mortgage interest rates below 1%. And in fact, in Denmark right now, uh, a quarter of new mortgages have an interest rate below zero. So, you know, uh, people, people say, oh, it's going to bounce, but it's, you know, just keep in mind that the future might also be that, that as well. Yeah, I was the thinking about interest this, rate actually. I, I want to follow two threads there. What did, did, what did you have uh, when you're talking about the RBA and what they do? Philip Lowe came out and said, look, house prices are not in our remit. Did you see that when he said that? And he said, you know, it's to do with policy and rezoning and taxes. It's not my problem. Did did you see that? And how did you react to that if you did? Oh, well, he's lying because if he admits that, then the whole sort of ideological and institutional structure we've built up around monetary policy comes into question. He can't he can't get people questioning the logic of what his institution does, right? He can't go around saying, you know, there's a few contradictions in the whole purpose of my existence. <laughs> I want to point those out to you. He can't say that. What he's got to say is, oh, you know, we've got all this under control. What I do is really good and important. And, you know, we've addressed all the issues. Trust me, trust me. And, and trust, you know, is part of part of their job, obviously. Mm. Uh, but, you know, the Bank of England's come out and said, oh, yeah, you know, monetary policy is really bad for wealth inequality. And it mostly happens through the housing market. They, they know this. They know it's in the textbooks. It's literally in their explainers of how does monetary policy work? Well, we do this and then people with mortgages pay less. People with assets like housing, the value of those assets go up and, and then they spend money. It's, it's right there. It's not a secret. Um, it's, it's the purpose. It's the purpose, I would say, 
is to get that to happen and cross your fingers that people spend more money uh, and, and, you know, we get more economic activity. So, so one thing I tell the people is, you know, politicians say what they have to say. Politicians don't mean what they say. They say things that need to be said. And that's true when you are the face of an institution. You have to represent that institution. You're not saying your deep personal beliefs that you got from your independent analysis of a topic. You're playing a part. You're an actor playing a part, representing an institution. And so you need to keep that in mind. I think journalists journalists really um, are not very good at, at that these days, at well, questioning, you know, this guy said this. They pretend he means it, right? Well, in Australia, the, the press that they give the RBA is so fawning. Like, it always makes me just like cringe when they have the the speech there in the paper and they sort of deconstruct uh, the the thing to you know explain what it all means. And you're like, this whole thing's just a charade. Uh, it's ridiculous. Um, it is a charade. I mean, I love the data that they share in speeches. They have much uh, better ability than I do of forcing different institutions and and departments to to give them data and packaging it up, which is great for an economist. But you have to remember, it's it's theatre. They play in many ways the same role as the chief economist at a bank, of, of reassuring the world that that our institution is is very trustworthy and we've got everything under control. You know, they're they're basically part of the marketing team. Well, it's funny you say that actually, because just the just the marketing team's been busy for the CDA and all that. Uh, they've you know they've come out forecasting. You know, I think it was one of them said Sydney property was going to fall 12% next year. And I was like, why? Um, but is that them just covering if we do see a bit of a cool down in the property market, they're just sort of letting everybody know that yeah, they're all good with that. Not that it's going to uh, happen in my view, but. Well, in some ways, yes, but I do know people there and some of them genuinely think that uh, if, if interest rates rise, that that will quickly change perceptions in the market that's the from my understanding that's the scenario that i think is most likely uh of course i've had arguments with these people and said have you actually looked at previous interest rate rises um apart from uh, the mid 20 teens the interest rate rises in the noughties and the 90s that that they had no noticeable effect in prices rose for years with rising interest rates. <laughs> you know, I just wrote my, like, my latest article. The, the US Fed rose interest rates 17 times between 2004 and 2006, I think it was. And yeah, and I, if I recall, mortgage rates went from 5% to 9% in Australia as well um, from 2003 to 2008, yeah. So, so that period there, you could see, and I think that's the sort of period we're in again now. If, if I could um, try and you know, cast your mind back, uh, we're, we're sort of in the 2003-04 period again. So we're seeing Sydney rise early. So Sydney might drop off a bit next year, but the rest of the country has a lot of catching up to do. And that's what happened in 2004-05-06. Uh, the rest of the country caught up um, in terms of property prices. And you know, part of the logic for that, for example, uh, Brisbane prices compared to Sydney prices are at record lows. So the the ratio of your average property in Sydney in Brisbane is the lowest it's been compared to Sydney since the 2003 peak uh, of Sydney prices. 
So that's why, yeah, that's why I still think there's a lot of room to go outside of Sydney, even if Sydney does fall. But I, I can't see more than 10% off next year. Maybe another 10% next year and maybe a slight fall the following year in Sydney. Hard to say. So what is your actual view then of, of interest rates? Do you think they are going to rise or are you, uh, you're more sanguine about that threat and it's perfectly possible they go the other way? Oh, they'll rise before they fall. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll talk you through my most likely scenario is they start rising in the second half of next year and they are cautiously ratcheted up at quarter of a percent or I think they're even moving at 0.1% um, these days and they'll ratchet that up for a couple of years while prices are rising. By the time we get to something like 2027, interest rates will be back where they are now or lower. That would be, so we're going to, we're going to ride out that cycle, try and try and taper it off. And then when prices start falling, they'll be, well, we, we've got to drop them back to where they were. Um, it's very interesting too, with um, uh, the effect those rising rates will have on the banking system, which is usually very good for the banking system. Uh, but we can illustrate this another way. I've got a wealthy friend who bought a factory down here in uh, Melbourne last year, and he just went to the auction of the one next door. Uh, yesterday, I can't remember now. Anyway, he's basically doubled his money in a year. Um, and it's like, you know, a quarter of a percent interest rate rise or whatever. It doesn't really change the equation when you can look at that sort of capital gain. Um, oh, well, think about, think about buying a property outside of Sydney. You can buy a house that's getting 4% yield and you can borrow money at 2% right now. And so you've got 2% spare compared to renting to pay any other costs of ownership. So to get back to a normal situation where those are roughly similar, the cash rate would have to go up from 0.1 to like nearly 3%. How many rises would it take to do that and how long would they take? Yeah, that's, that's, that's increasing the cash rate by 30 times over <laughs> uh, in terms of its magnitude. So, um, and even then, property would still not be a bad buy in many cases, especially if you think there's kind of capital growth and if wages are growing well and rents are growing, it's, it's still fine. So, you know, the, the catch therein is that they will only raise rates while property is going up, right? And the very fact that property is going up makes it a better investment even at the higher interest rate. You know what I'm saying? So they, mm. they tend to move together even though the intention is that, well, you know, one's a break on the other. This is the whole problem with, like, monetary policy, right? Like you, you, you've got this blanket policy that feeds into all these different markets in different ways. Um. It's like yeah, I, for everything. I guess let, let me let me put it this way. I, I've become a big critic of monetary policy as a as the primary stabilization policy. Uh, and I've evolved that view over the last decade. And part of that is actually trying to teach students at university what the hell monetary policy does they know it's this accelerator for the economy and then they always like well why don't you just put your foot to the floor i mean more growth is good why not max it out and they go inflation but then you have to go well why is 
that bad? Is it really that bad? It's very hard to argue. And then you look at like, what's the transmission mechanism of that? Well, you know, you change this rate that banks get at the central bank overnight, then you cross your fingers that everybody else changes their rate. And then you cross your fingers that that changes everybody's investment decision. Then you cross your fingers that this other thing happens. Like it's so indirect the way it flows through. And the whole purpose at the end of the day is that some people have more money in their bank accounts and you hope they spend it, right? When you can just put money in people's bank accounts, Reserve Bank could just do that anytime they want it. Um, but they have to sort of hide it. So I, I've become very critical because uh, one, of the, one of the other catches with low interest rates is they make you more patient. So, you know, look at Japan. They've had low interest rates for a long time. It's just very hard to get things going. And um, how do I describe this? There's a, there's, a, there's a class of economic models called real options. You're probably familiar with real options in financial investment. But um, the real options basically say, do you do something today or do you wait? And in those scenarios, for example, like do I demolish this building and build a new one, uh, low interest rates make you more patient. They make you more willing to wait and see what happens. Whereas high interest rates, you're like, geez, if I don't do this, uh, I'll miss out on this good return. So in this class of models, low interest rates make people more patient about investing in new capital goods, buildings, et cetera. And so I think once we get through this adjustment to the low rates and this, uh, you know, this big asset adjustment of investors coming back in first, home buyers shifting, getting the home builder, we'll see this period where everyone's like, well, why, you know, property developers, why would I build a house and sell it now? Waiting is cheap. Waiting is cheap. Um, and so that's that's another one of my concerns, whereas if the cash rate was above 5%, you might go, well, waiting is expensive sitting on this asset that I, I need to put some buildings and equipment on and put it to work. Well, that's, so there's um, a tension there. That's a bit of a segue into land taxes because the idea of a land tax is you force people to put the land into use. Um, yeah, well, uh, that's, that's right. So low interest rates is essentially like let's make land taxes lower. On, 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 on idle assets, make it cheaper for people to not um, you know, invest in them. So, yeah, it's a very good parallel. Let's, let's talk rezone, rezoning a little bit because this is, I mentioned okay. earlier that we first talked about how you showed how some highly dubious decision-making was made in Queensland. Uh, and there's a couple of stories dear to my heart down here in Victoria where... Um, the an area called Fisherman's Bend. I don't know if you know this story. Half of the Victorian Liberal Party donors had bought it up, and then it was conveniently rezoned, uh, resulting in massive windfalls. Um, just from your experience, do you want to explain how lucrative that is for for people who are involved in that, and what the ideal mm. structure would be that be, to benefit everybody? Yeah, yeah. Fishman's Bend, I think, is the reason that there's such an interest in Victoria and that they've introduced this windfall gains tax. Now, I think uh, people come come at this from different uh, intellectual, different worlds, right? So, with different intellectual baggage of of you know what what is a property owner's right? And uh, you know, some people say, well, I get the rights to everything. You know, rezoning is an impingement on my rights, whereas you know, in reality, all laws, your property is just another law, 
zoning is just another law. They all just define what rights someone gets when they own a piece of paper called a title. And so zoning defines all these rights. And because that piece of paper that you're buying uh, has a certain set of rights, it's worth a certain value. So if you're in industrial zone, but yeah, the block next door is a high rise zone and you're in an inner city area, that block next door is going to be worth more. I mean, there's nothing physically different about it, but the laws are different and that law has a value and that law comes from zoning. And so if you can purchase land uh, at one zone where the seller also expects only that zone, manipulate the hand of government to change the laws, essentially give you new rights, essentially, uh, I, I, I think of property rights as each having a title, right? And so I can get rights to the airspace just as if the government gave me rights to build next door on the block of public land. I mean, they're both pieces of public land. Um, just one is above me and one's beside me. And they're giving me the rights to build within that space. And those are very lucrative. So your typical apartment building, an apartment that sells for 800000 it's probably worth two hundred fifty or $300,000, the airspace to build that apartment in, in, an, in a capital city location. So if you can get the rights to build a 10-storey building with 80 apartments in it, you're looking at $4 million plus dollars um, of additional value from, from owning that property during the period when it gets rezoned. So I, I looked um, across Australia. So the ACT has a system where if you want to change the use, so the planning system operates and it changes the rules about what you can build. And if you want to take your property from what it is and use it for a different use, you have to forfeit your title to the titles office that says detached dwelling and buy another title that says multi-unit dwelling and pay the difference in price it's 75% of the difference so it's a 75% betterment tax or windfall gains tax and then you own a different set of rights and it allows you to build that and so what I did to see how much we're giving away is scale up the revenue from the ACT system by the rate of development and the value of dwellings in different cities. And back in 2016, I think the data was, I reckon about $11 billion in the other states was given to property owners who got rezoned. That could have been captured by the government had we just had ACT system of selling property rights when we rezone. So that's $11 billion a year. So since that, it's about $60 billion a year <laughs> we've given out, probably much more because the values in Sydney and Melbourne have, have risen substantially and actually in most places this year. Um, so that's yep. that's how I think of it. And, that's, and the, the reason to charge for it, of course, is because that's the windfall gain. That's the honeypot that attracts that corruption and interest around manipulating the hand of government and making them rezone my land and not your land. So if you can take away the payoff from corruption, you probably get less of it. And even if you get it, do you know what? You're, you've insured yourself against the, the economic loss by charging the tax. And not only that, the destructive taxes could come off or be lessened. I think if you've got $11 billion, you can reduce lots of $11 billion worth of taxes you don't like. That's exactly right. And I think people miss that part as well. So there's two confusions here. One is that, you know, I already own that airspace. You know, you're just taxing me 
on something I already own, which is not quite true. The other thing is that, oh, but you're taxing, but you're just going to waste it. I'm like, well, but when you think about taxes, you should just tax the best taxes and then don't tax the worst taxes. And, you know, it's true of every tax, right? Um, Absolutely. What we should be doing is, is, is having good ones and not bad ones. When you did your submission that I alluded to earlier, I mean, and I know Prosper do these things. When you talk to people in power, how are they received? You mean the in terms of the rezoning windfalls or in terms of well, the just anything, when you go to, side or when you put out this work, I mean I'm sure you get your hardcore Georgists and stuff go, yeah, good yeah, idea. Yeah. But does anyone in positions of authority do anything about it? Uh I would say that. The bureaucrats read it a lot. So, for example, um, I got a call from the UK Department of Innovation the other day. And they're saying, we've been reading your papers on this and we've got this inquiry into this and we need we need your expert advice. And I've got calls from Auckland Council and New Zealand Treasury about things and different parts of different state treasuries and planning departments. So definitely these are being read and they're, definitely being understood uh, by those people. Politically, yeah, you get some interest. Um, I definitely have spoken to many uh, MPs and ministers about this sort of stuff. I think at the end of the day, there's, yeah, they, they need to win elections and taxing people who own houses is bad, <laughs> bad election calculus. Um, so increasing land taxes is bad. It's difficult. Let me say it's, it's difficult. The ACT did it, but it's, it's difficult. The windfall gains tax, I think, is one of those that um, satisfies a lot of people, and I think that's why it got up in, in Victoria because it's very hard to argue, oh, yeah, uh, all these wealthy land speculators, they should get stuff from – we should just give them property rights for free through the planning system. Like it's very hard to argue that. Right. I'm sure they'll try and, it. <laughs> no, I mean, they'll try it. They, I mean, they'll say it'll add to prices. I'm like, well, why are you concerning? If you can just add, add, put your prices up, then what, what are you losing out? Why are you arguing? So there's a lot of contradictions in that, and they'll, they'll of course, try. But I think it's a much easier sell than, for example, a broader-based land tax, especially on homeowners. Um, so, look, we'll, we'll see how it goes in Victoria. I had some input on the design, and it's not exactly what I would do. But, you know, there's a lot of pragmatic decisions that need to be made to actually get something happening uh, and functioning. Uh, so it's, it's not quite ideal, but it's, it's, it's pretty okay. Well, I've got my, this is what I'm going to finish on. And I don't know how your boss or professor or however it works at the uni goes, but this is my challenge to you. And you accept this task, this grave task. Can you go and understand China's real estate market for us? Because everybody's had a crack at it. So get on a plane and get over there. Do you accept the challenge? What's going on over in China? Yeah, um, I, I would definitely like to go um, and and suss that out. What's going on in China is I think uh, I think if in real estate you gotta get your head out of people living in houses and buying houses and building houses, get your head out of that land and get into the economy has assets and a portfolio of assets. And the people who own those assets like to reallocate them over time. 
And in China, I think that's what we have is that we have a huge amount of wealth creation in China. And basically, we need to spread it out across different assets. And so, you know, you build houses, you put money in there and you you have empty houses. Why do you have empty houses? Because you've got all these assets and you need to spread them out over different classes, right? And there just weren't enough of each class because everything else is growing fast as well. And so you end up with, I think it's 25% of dwellings in China are vacant, where it's about 10% here. And prices are still super high. Why is that? Because their sort of asset economy grew very, very fast, faster than anyone needed to occupy dwellings. Do you see a scenario where that Chinese wealth, Australia, if they remove their restrictions on capital flows and then they start going up, buying up the world, basically, for those well, same they reasons? Have. That's right. Well, in the, in the, in the, 20 teens they did do that all across the uk europe us australia canada they certainly I feel like did. it's going to happen um, again though yeah yeah well it might it might it very well might um i think the chinese government has a bit more of a long-term plan doesn't really want that to happen too much but it's very difficult to control right because you've there's such a broad chinese um uh, community in all these countries, and so through through relatives and networks, you can always um, find ways to to get money around. Uh, yeah, it, it could happen, and I think the last data point I saw was there has been a rise in foreign buying of residential real estate in Australia. So I think it peaked peaked in twenty fifteen and then dropped off quite a lot, and I think it's it's turned again. So, well, the yields could here happen. are still very good relative to the rest of the world. What exactly. Then? I mean, why, why wouldn't you buy a house in Australia at 4% yield? Why wouldn't you? Well, besides my challenge for you, China, oh, I agree. Yeah. Um, what are you actually working on <laughs> next? What are we going to see next from you? Um, so I'll, I'll, maybe I'll talk about a couple of things. Okay. One is I'm proposing, it's more of a sort of, policy proposal document and I'm proposing that Australia copies Singapore's public housing system. If you genuinely this was part of your submission, had, right? I've read this. Oh uh, yeah. I'm well, flesh, touched I on the point. Out. Yeah. I touch on the point everywhere. My my line is if you genuinely want people to have cheap housing and high home ownership, then you copy Singapore's system. If you haven't copied it, it's because you don't want it. That's that's the way <laughs> that's the way I see it. So I'm I'm just gonna circulate it, put it out there, um, and, and get that discussion going. Because one thing on housing that we don't we we really misunderstand uh, is that the public sector can cheaply get involved in building housing because housing is an asset, right? It goes up in value if you own. So the 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 Land and Housing Commission in New South Wales. Their balance sheet went from 30 billion to 54 billion in the last seven years while they were selling off assets because property goes up in value, right? It captures the average income effects across the economy. Um, and so, you know, it's just sort of showing you how cheap it would be to just build people houses and give them at a discount to, to households that don't own housing like Singapore does, essentially offering you free land. So you pay construction costs, you get a discounted mortgage, you get free land. Um, 
So that's that's one thing that I'm trying to put out there and change the debate. Hang on, let's just Another, stop on that for a second. You're going to go up against hmm. the build to rent guys, which is where the private market wants to go, right? Oh, the build to rent's hilarious. I don't <laughs> I don't get how having a class of landlords with more political clout and more tax breaks is good for Australian housing and tenants and home buyers. Like, why why are build to rent guys not going to jack up the rent and kick you out? when they can they're going to have much more efficient ways of doing it and be able to navigate the laws much better than a mum and dad who wants to kick you out and is a bit worried about doing the wrong thing now the build to rent and the other catch with build to rent is all these property developers want build to rent but at the same time that they have all this spare land to do build to rent they don't have enough land to even satisfy the home purchaser market they got all this spare land to build build to rent i'm like well Where'd that come from? Why don't you sell that? You keep telling me you don't have enough. So I do find that a bit weird. Uh, yeah, the build to rent, I think it's a solution in search of a problem. Uh, and the, the problem is that large property companies have too much undeveloped land sitting around <laughs> and they want to smooth off the cycle of development with by using that land to build to rent. So that's the problem. The problem is they've got too much developable land. And that's the only thing that makes sense where build to rent is the solution. Right. All right. So you've you got your Singapore campaign. What was the other thing you mentioned? Uh, I'm looking at the data on uh, house sales in new housing estates across Australia to look at the economic incidence of the home builder subsidy. The question with home builders, does it immediately get capitalized into land prices? Because I've got this extra bit of money. If I buy a vacant piece of land, I can spend less on developing it. Therefore, um, you've got this price gap between new and existing dwellings, but these are substitute assets making the same yield. So the question is, well, you, you, know, you can't have that, uh, that gap. It's going to get arbitraged away. How's it going to do that? through higher vacant land prices so that the land and construction and subsidy cost is equal to the, um, the price of an existing dwelling. So I'm trying to tease out what proportion of home builder went to the land value in new subdivisions um, in the last 12 months. Cool. So that should be interesting. Um, <clears throat> what was the other thing? <laughs> Uh, that I'm up to. Oh, lots of other things about the housing absorption rate. So there's a lot of, um, there's a mystery. And this came out in my testimony to the housing inquiry about land banking. And I don't know if you saw it, but Jason Valencia was the chair. And he's actually a very good um, chair of this he really asks good sharp questions and doesn't mess around and doesn't accept bureaucratic jargon as an answer and uh he i i was trying to explain that undeveloped land is an asset and it sits on your balance sheet and it's worth money and the people who own it don't want cash if they wanted cash they wouldn't own the undeveloped land right? so they don't have to sell it because it's rising in value while it's undeveloped and when they develop it they can only do it once they can't build a you know, a townhouse and go, God damn, prices went up. I should have bought, built a five-story apartment building, right? Because it's done. So you've got all these incentives to wait. And he couldn't get his head around, no, 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 but they need cash flow. They need this. I'm like, why? You've, you own shares. 
you need money, but you still own them. You know, every asset is owned by someone who doesn't want cash right now. Every non-cash asset, right? It's also true of undeveloped land. And so he couldn't get his head around that. So I'm, I'm trying to communicate that in various ways. And I'm trying to do a pretty detailed sort of economic research paper. I've got 21 million um, dwelling sales across Australia, vacant lands, dwelling, everything. And I'm going to try and, and demonstrate or test the idea that there's this market limit to how quickly you develop, that there's this absorption rate. And that's how property markets work. They don't just flood the market to keep the price down just just because it's physically or, or legally possible. They are asset markets that learn to maximise return over time amongst all, all players. So they're, they're, that's the sort of uh, area I'm, uh, I'm looking in at the moment. Yeah, a lot to do with housing and, and housing supply. Cool. All right. Let's leave it there as far as the podcast goes. That's probably the longest one we've done so far, um, which is all good. Uh, cool. Well, I really appreciate it, mate. That was great. Um, yeah, that was good. I love uh, following your work and uh, everything I've seen from you has has always been good. Um, I feel like you should be writing for investors or something. Maybe you do. You do get calls from investors and stuff. I do. Yeah, yeah. People on LinkedIn in America. Um, a guy's a guy who's a bit of a startup guy in, in California found me on LinkedIn. He's like, what's going on with housing? Your blog is the only thing that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I found it. And so, you know, he, um, he said, I, I want to have a phone call. And um, yeah, so my plan after the university gig is to start a bit of an independent one-man band sort of think tanky organization well not organization just me where i do you know periodic research papers so a little bit like a what i do but also just general commentary on on what's nonsense and what's not on what you're seeing and uh and yeah maybe i'll, I'll work out what people want but i've got a, a queue of of wealthy people who i've been in touch with and have been in touch with me who you know are looking for you know, it's people, someone, a sounding board of someone, right? Who's really fiercely independent and and really logical. Um, so, however that works out, that's the plan in end of second half of 2023.